Okay, so this is what I would deem or call lesson number eight. So we've had eight topics. This is the, this, the, the eighth topic. I entitled it on your handout as uh, the age of, uh, let's see, how did I say it? Man and the age of the earth. So we'll kind of tie those two topics together. And uh, now everything that we're talking about, every topic we talk about can, it can go, I mean, we could spend weeks on every topic. And there's, there's, there's just so much information, and uh, I don't want to over, overwhelm you. I already got a lot of material as it is, but uh, I don't want to overwhelm you. But anyway, we're going to get started here on uh, the age of the earth and man, and uh, how do we get to man and so on. And so uh, just as a reminder from you know, the word apologetics, is, is the word means, and it comes from uh, First Peter three fifteen. It says to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So we need to be able to always give an answer. And what are the challenging kind of questions that comes from the world or from your family or maybe you have had these questions all your you, whether you're saved now or not doesn't mean you have all the answers right now. But that's kind of why we're going through this. But how would you know what what some of the questions are? How do you know that God is real? How do you know that Jesus Christ is real? How do you know the Bible is accurate? How do you know all these things? Well, you have, a, you have the hope that's in you. you. You have an answer. You should have an answer, and that's what we're going through. So apologetics is just giving a reason for your position on God, your position on the Bible, your position on creation and Christ and other faith or religious-based propositions or positions that you may take. Uh, and evangelism is the declaration of the good news, and all we're doing is declaring what we know to be true. Okay, so we're talking tonight, we're going to talk about, first off, we're going to get started on on, on uh, what, I, what I want to start with, the estimates of the age of the earth. So we know what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That's probably the easiest, Bible, easiest verse in the whole Bible to memorize. Uh, I think everybody should have that one nailed down. In the beginning, God created the heaven singular, and we won't get into the reason why I'm pointing out the singular tonight, uh, but heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God created. Well, the question is, well, when was the beginning? How do we know when the beginning was? And that is part of the challenge that, that the, the world, the humans, humans in existence are trying to answer. But let me just give you some false evolutionary, the evolutionary measurements that are thrown out very readily, very, you know, whether it's whether it's in, uh, in a, a science class, uh, a college class, uh, a sitcom on TV, uh, or anything, uh, these numbers that I'm going to throw up here are promoted by a lot of different venues and different places. For example, the first one, evolutionary measurements falsely put the formation of the earth at 4.5 billion years ago. So they want to they say... That in the beginning, of course, they won't say that in the beginning that God created it, but in the beginning, the earth was created 4.5 billion years ago in the past. Falsely, they will also tell you that the formation of the universe itself is 38 billion years old. So basically, that makes the the earth a baby in universe time in comparison to. Thirdly, uh, um, evolutionary measurements falsely put the age of the human being at 5 million years. So man, according to the evolutionary theor- theories and teachings and 
Um, you'll get it from a lot of different sources, but anyway, they, man has been around for five million years. One of the things that, that uh, evolutionary teaching and evolutionary measurements do also um, is uh, they, they, make some, they, they, uh, they, they make some accusations, they make some claims. Uh, well, let me back up a second. Those numbers that I gave you, we're going to try to eliminate those as why they're not true numbers. We'll deal with that. Uh, we're going to determine just how long man has been on the earth. Uh, that'll be part of what we're going to wrap up here to, tonight if we get to it. Um, the five million years is not accurate. Uh, we'll talk about that as we get through the end of this lesson tonight. So we learned a few weeks ago that the question of why there is something rather than nothing causes us to ask some rather important questions. You know, why is there something rather than nothing? We talked about that, if you recall, uh, the first few weeks. The sadness of evolutionary teaching destroys the value and the self-worth of the individual. This is a problem with evolution. Evolution says you have no value to anything. I mean... You, you're, 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 not, you're of no value. So let me just point that out. Evolution says that you're the result of mindless, random mutations. Uh, the, the five million years, well, first things had to evolve from 3.38 billion years and then um, 4.5 billion and then the five million and finally we get to you. And, uh, and so, so uh, there's all this... Man, mindless random mutations. We talked about mutations and evolution and the four, the four pillars of evolutionary progress last week. Uh, evolution says that you have no soul and you have no destiny. That's a problem with, this, with evolution. Evolution says you have no soul. So what are you would be a question. Then Are you the flesh that you're in? Uh are you are you your mind are you your self consciousness are you are you your soul where are you at what goes on beyond your body after your body dies what 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 happens where do you go and so on evolution claims there's no higher calling on your life there's no sense of sacrifice for others there's no victory over evil there's no sin and there's no death isn't that an amazing thing? That's what evolution would tell you. There is no sin. There is no death. There is no victory. There's nothing over evil. We'll talk about evil next week when we talk about morality and evil and suffering, actually, the next two weeks. And then lastly, it, it, evolution tells us that sacrifice for others violates natural selection. You remember the natural selection conversation we had last week? We talked about how you make it, you make it through because you have certain adaptations to the environment that you live. Well, if you're going to be a sacrifice, remember what John chapter 15, verse 13 says? says uh, greater love has, has, then, there is no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's a sacrifice. But if you're going to die for your friends or die for your country or die for somebody else for any circumstance, your children or whatever, it was a waste of your sacrifice. Sacrifice didn't mean anything according to evolution, because it just does. There's no value in your sacrifice. High calling, according to evolution, is a myth, for there is nothing higher than you. 
You are the peak. You're, you're the pinnacle of evolution. You, you, you have... There, you know, what's beyond the human? If you came from a mutation from a lower creature, what's beyond the human being? Evolution will tell you that there's nothing, so that makes you the high God. You are the God of, you, of the universe, in their, in their view. And of course, they won't call you a God. Uh, you're the top of the food chain. You're soulless, though, because a soul is inherently eternal. By definition, a soul exists separately from the walking clay that you are. And so they don't have an answer for where your soul comes from. So these are kind of some of the things that, that my mind pondered when I was putting this study together a few years back. It's like, well, what do you do with this kind of stuff? Okay, so creation uh, is more than an answer to the reason for God. It's an answer for the reason for you, too. So remember, we started off talking about being be able to give a reason, an answer for the reason of the hope that lies within you about God. But let me just tell you, not only is all of this stuff that we're talking about a, a truth statement that God exists, it is also a truth statement about who you are. It is a truth statement about who you are. Uh, it's an answer for the reason for you. Why are there even human beings on the earth? But natural selection selected us? We won the soup, the sweepstakes. I mean, what makes us better than than the snail? What makes us better than the walrus? Well, we think we're better because we want to protect all the all the wildlife out there, right? Okay. So the issue of creation versus evolution is, in fact, a very personal notion, for it defines your value in the universe. If creation is true. Creation, not evolution. But if creation is true, there's some truths that point to value. If evolution is true, then life is ultimately purposeless and void of any intrinsic value beyond what we artificially impose on life. To deny the existence of God begs the question about human value. This is a part of the conversation you may have with, a, with an atheist. They, don't, they, they can't put a value on life, on human life. They can't value human life. As an evolutionist, because well, what's, what, is, what, what gives you value? What gives you value as a Christian, as a believer of God? God gives you that value, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. So uh, to deny the existence of God begs the question about human value. What makes us the keepers of the earth? What makes us the caretakers of other creatures? Do we really think that we are so superior that we get to decide how the resources of the universe are used? I mean, think about that for just a minute. What makes us so special that we would want to set aside uh, resources to protect our natural resources? I mean, what makes us so special that we get to decide how that happens? What's that? God did tell us to do that, but if you take God out of it, we don't have then then we're, just, we're, we're, we're imposing on something on ourselves that is, is really of no value. Because natural selection won't allow that to happen. And, uh, I mean, if natural selection is real, eventually things are going to either go away or change into something else, according to, according to evolution. 
Survival of the fittest, a mutation, descent over time, and so on, must be the law of the land, according to evolution. However, if creation is true, this is the opposite side of that. If creation is true, I kind of jumped ahead on the slides and ignored that verse for just a moment. I mean, I don't think I can back up. No, I don't have it up here. But uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, if you have that in, I don't think it's in the notes, but it should be in your Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, talks about the, if creation is true, there is worth, value, position, and expectation for the human. Genesis one twenty six. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Let us, God said to himself, let us make man in our image. There's where we get value. We get value because we're like, we're, we're in the image of God, or at least we started off in the image of God. Sin got in the way, unfortunately. We'll talk, that sin is not where we're going today. Okay, so the value of man provides eternal questions. You know, like, why am I here? Why am I here in the universe? Why am I on this planet? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Am I significant? Evolution can't or, and chooses not to try to even answer those questions. They don't have questions. They don't have answers for those. God's word, though, gives us the heart of the matter in three verses. The first one is Job chapter 17, 7, verse 17. Job recognizes that God's heart is directed towards man. God's heart is directed towards man. He says in Job 7, 17, What is man that thou should magnify him, that thou should have set thine heart upon him? What, what's, what is man? Man is God's creation, and he has put his heart... We are on God's heart. You know, you have people on your heart all the time, you know, whether it's your spouse or your grandchildren or your neighbors or your mom or your dad or somebody. They're on your heart. As humans, we are on God's heart in the same way. He's always thinking about us. He's always contemplating us. He's always moving for us to do something. But why did God magnify man over the rest of creation? Isn't that an amazing thing? We're actually magnified over all... Every, God created everything. He created every living ex, thing in existence, and he created us, but he also put us above them. What mag, why, why did God magnify us over the rest of creation? We're special to God, but why? Why does God have a heart for man? Simply, the answer is simply this, because he loves us. David recognizes that very thing in David in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, that David recognizes that God desires man. And he said, what is man? Just like we're talking about, what is man? God, David, David is asking the question, what is man? That thou art mindful of him. What is, what is man that we are on your mind, we're on your heart? And the son of man, that thou visitest him. Why, God, did you come down to us? What makes us so special that you would... Present yourself to us, which is exactly what God did. What makes him so special? What makes humanity so special? Why does God have a heart for man? Simply because he loves us, David, David says, Psalm 8, 4. Why does the creator consider man at all? Why does he want to be a part of man's existence? That's an incredibly important question, but I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to bring this down a little bit tighter to yourself. Why does God want to be a part of your existence? There's not a person in the room. There's not a person that comes to this church. There's not a person anywhere on the earth 
that God doesn't want to have a part to play in that person's life. That's how God feels about every single person. And David understood that again. David realizes that God has designs on us. In Psalm chapter 144, verse 3, it says, Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him, or the son of man that thou makest account of him? Why does God have man on his mind? Why does God even think of man? These questions form the backdrop of understanding the value that God places on man above all the rest of his creation. I mean, when you think about how, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how many different life forms there are on this planet. But can you think about it for just a minute? How many, how many animals, how many insects, how many f- critters in the sea, how many plants are available? Every one of them, God created them, and he cares for them, but he cares for you more than he cares for them. And it's an amazing thought to even think about. He never died for the angels. God never died for an angel. He doesn't care for the angels the same way he cares for you. I would actually go so far as to say that God sees man as more important than the angels. He never died for them. He gave his life for you and for me. I was listening to, remember listening to Mike Pepper's message this past Sunday, and it occurred to me, all the stuff that Mike, Pastor, uh, Dr. Pepper, as some people like to call him, I, I, as I was listening to that, it occurred to me that God did not send anyone to the angelic beings to rescue them. We're not supposed to go tell the angels that God loves you and wants you to be saved. He wants us to tell other humans that God loves you. And God. He doesn't even want us to go and tell the tigers in, in India that God loves you and wants you to be saved. He wants humans to be saved. All that other stuff, will take, God will take care of on his own. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? Okay, so that's kind of all preface. So let's talk about man, the descent of man. And what I want you to do is just consider what evolutionary processes say about the human being. So you're the result, supposedly, of mutations that started, as I said earlier, on the earth at least four and a half billion years ago. Mutations began, and there, was, there wasn't, at the t- as far as evolution is concerned, there was no plan, there was no forethought. You, it just started mutating, and eventually man came up. More recently, five million years ago, you began the journey of separating yourself from your ape ancestors. This is evolution telling you this. You begin to separate yourself from your ape ancestors to rise above uh, something distinctly different, but for what reason is beyond even consideration? Evolution doesn't answer these kind of questions. So science has given vastly confusing terms to various aspects of human development, both to identify and to confuse. I've got this chart that I'm going to throw up here. This chart um, I found online a couple of years ago, and so I kind of made it up on this slide to duplicate it. But I'm not saying that this is accurate. This is just how science thinks you evolved. So we'll start with this, the descent of man. So we start with the superfamily. Those terms on the right, on, on your right, superfamily, family, subfamily, tribe, and genus, those are all man's descriptions. Because man, we like to catalog things. We like to, we like to put them on a shelf and, and sort them all out and identify, okay, so this is, this is this group and this is this group and this is, a, this is, okay, take some of these and put them on the bottom shelf because they're a subgroup. And Man likes to do that. 
Well, it doesn't really, you can call it whatever you want, but as, basically as you stroll down the, the, the list, and I can't say these words tonight, but we start up here, this is supposedly the ape, and then we work our way down to homo, which is uh, humans. And then there's, I'll talk about those, all those other ones briefly, just a moment. Okay, so that's the chart, and then so so basically, what we have is on the starting on your on your left, you have human, and then under pan is the chimp. That pan is just another genus word that some genius made up. Uh, chimp, and then under gorilla, well, coincidentally, you got gorilla, and then a pongo is actually an orangutan, and then a hylobite is a gib is a gibbon or a lower ape. I don't know what a lower ape and an upper ape is. I don't know, but they cataloged them, and that's what you get. So the prefix homo uh, actually means human. The word homo, I mean, scientifically it means human. I mean, I know that derogatorily speaking, we can make that mean a lot of things, but that's, I'm just going with science right now, what they call it. The word human, at least in the scientific usage of the word, now, I'm going to throw this statement up here. I found this on, the, on a website for the Australian Museum of Natural History. Now, basically, this chart is showing you descended from apes. And you probably have heard that said many times before. Man is nothing but a descendant of apes. Well, this is what the Australian Museum of Natural History says about that. Humans did not evolve from an ape. We are apes. And our closest living relatives include chimpanzees and gorillas. So, you know, okay, so if you follow back up, that's apes. And so, yeah, that they kind of, I see where they get that at. It's kind of silly, but I see it. You know, and so our chimps and the gorillas, they're all our cousins. So that's what uh, the, the Australian Museum of Natural History thinks about it all. That's how they teach it. That's literally a sign in their museum. It's not, I'm not just making that up. They, have a sign in their museum. Okay, let me go on. There's three evidences for evolutionary processes, which we, we talked about this, but we didn't use these terms. But the first is the pattern of similarity. The second one is DNA sequences of the human genome. And third is lots and lots of unproven assumptions. So this is how evolutionary uh, science would get to what they think is right. Similarity. We remember we talked about the similarity. We had the chart. We had the diagram. We had the, 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 uh, the started off with a gorilla. And then we had like several, several pictures of eventually we got to man, uh, the, the, the parade of man, that picture. And we had horses. We had pictures of horses with a little bitty horse that turned into a, what we would think of a horse today. We had those charts. Well, that's what similarity represents. And we did talk a little bit about DNA, but we didn't really get into it as much as we probably will today. And then, of course, there's what, I, what, what is basically un, un, unproven assumptions. So, and I think I read a statement last week to you that basically said uh, that they basically come up with their own answer. They make up the story. They tell a story. They paint a story. They build a story to fill their belief system. Um, so all hominine fossils are either ape or human. We talked about fossils last week. We didn't really talk a lot about the fossils that are human or ape. 
but almost all, all hominine fossils, that would be that chart there, the hominine up in here, all the way down over to here, all those fossils that they find, that they're either ape or human. Let me go on here. Most fossil evidence is too rare and sketchy and mostly made up of fragments. So the fossils that they do have, even though they say, well, that's an ape or that's a human or whatever, there's not that many fossils. How, do you remember how many fossils I told you you could find in museums today? Anybody remember that, that number? 200 million fossils, and, and that's, that's worldwide in museums. Okay, so let me give you some more numbers here. 95% of all known fossils are shallow marine organ, organisms, such as coral and shellfish. And we talked about that uh, pre -Cam the Cambrian explosion and all the fossils that were found there. Most of them, 95% of that 200 million fossils are shallow marine organisms like coral and shellfish. 95% of the remaining 5% are algae, tree, and plant life. 5% of the 5% five, 5 of the 5% of or 2 or 0.25 of the whole of all of those is fish, bird, and mammal. And in the last number, 1% of the quarter percent are actually only a single bone. They found one bone, and they made a story up about it. I was going to, I thought I'd take some time and, you know, dig into Lucy. Uh, we mentioned Lucy, the, the, uh, uh, the ape-like animal that they think was a uh, the missing link. Well, I think they found like 40 bones scattered over a space as big as this room. And they think all those bones came from that one person. And anyway, we don't want to get into all of that tonight. Because uh, there's a lot of stuff. We could talk about a lot of different things. But anyway, here's a, a quote from an evolutionary biologist. Uh, and he said, how can we explain the seeming, seeming saltation, if everything is just salted into the, into the ground as fossils, not having fossils that can serve as missing links? We have to fall back, this is important, fall back on the time-honored method of science, the construction of a historical narrative. We need to make up a story. So I got this, I got this pinky bone and it, surely it's the missing link. So let me create an animal that would be that bone. And I'll tell you how tall he is, what he did for a living, how many, fam how many kids he had in his family. I'll paint you a picture that you, you'll, you'll know that this is the descendant. Or this is one of our ancestors. That's how they do it. And he's, he's confessing that. There is a reason. And then you got to think about this is interesting. There is a reason that there's so few fossils or human fossils in particular Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, God says in Genesis 6, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. That's when God is about to unleash his flood, in Noah, what we call the Noah flood. And he said, hey, I'm going to destroy man. I'm going to get rid of man. I'm going to get rid of the evidence there was even a man there. So there's not that many bones that we can find as fossils for man or humanity anywhere. Most human fossils are found in the higher elevations. I showed you last week the chart of the uh, different um, 
periods of time and uh, three three major, four minor in each one of the majors. And, uh, and so there was up in the higher elevations, the, the layers of, of ground where most of the fossils were found. And the probable reason are that the sediments covered the lower animals and the sea creatures, the corals and the shellfish, but humans clawed their way to the higher levels, and instead of being buried, they died of drowning and floated until they were consumed. They just, they just disintegrated. They just rotted away. The main point of all of this is that God intended to destroy man and remove his remnants from the earth because God had, a pl- had, had God's punishment for the sin that was going on uh, when he looked down in, in Genesis chapter 6 and said, this is not, this is not good. We've got to wipe this out. So let me talk about DNA now. The pattern is the same for DNA when we talk about DNA. It's assumed by DNA to confirm humans and chimps are linked together. You never heard, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, that, that some scientists will claim that our DNA is, is essentially 90, 90 plus percent the same as a chimp. Our DNA structure is exactly the same as a, as a chimp or a gorilla or some sort of an ape. Um, but remember last week we said similarity in itself doesn't confirm common descent. So for this even to be a remote possibility, there must be a path from this old life form to a new life form, and there must be enough time to make change happen. Yet these two things have yet to be demonstrated for human evolution. Five million years really isn't that much time when it comes to their great big timeline starting from the beginning of creation, of their creation. The historical and the frequently publicized number for us being the same as a chimp is that our DNA is 98% the same as their DNA. And that sounds like, well, what do you do with that? I mean, I mean that's, if we all did a DNA sample of our families, we, we would be 98 plus. Your kids would be 98 plus of you. That's, that's how they can follow and track all that. So that's what, uh, anyway, I won't say what I was about to say, but anyway. Um, in actuality, and in, in reality, the human genome is made up of 3.097 billion what's called base pairs. I'll explain base pairs in just a moment. So basically, you, your DNA strand has 3.097 base pair connections, which are stored in the 23 chromosomes for human beings. Everybody has 23. Uh, and so uh, a chimp has more than 3.231 billion pairs or 134 million more pairs or 4.3% larger than a human. They, they have a bigger DNA strand. That's basically what I'm telling you. Our, our strand is this long. A chimp strand is this long. That's all I'm saying That's with the base pairs, okay? But here's the thing. Okay, let me tell you what a base pair is. What is a base pair? A base pair is two complementary uh, molecules that are connected by hydrogen bonds. Base pairs are found in, this, in the uh, DNA when the bonds between them connect two strands, making the double. So, you know, it looks like a twisted ladder. If you recall what a, ba- what a DNA looks like, it looks like a twisted ladder. You've got two verticals, and then they're all connected every so often. Those, those connections are the base pair. 
A base pair themselves are formed when the bases, which are complementary, nitrogen rich, when they join together. And a base pairing forms the basis for the, hill, the, the configuration of the shape. So there's four, there's four bases, there's four components, there's, and they labeled them. I don't know why they chose these alphabetic labels, but A is, is adene, C, G is guanine, uh, C is cystinine, and thymine is T. And so they join together in certain patterns that put together the information that makes you. And it looks like this. Base pair, uh, let's see, what does that say? I can't read it from here. So, um, so each one of these, that's, an, that's a T, that's an A, that's a G, and this is a, a C. And they, they link together over here. The sides of the DNA ladder are phosphate and sugar, and they're held together by hydrogen bonds. And they put together there. So the base pairs are like letters. Letters form words, and words form sentences. And so that's a sentence. That whole strand is a sentence. So that's as fine as that's as that's as much science you're going to get from me tonight. And that's all I know. But here's the point: to get to 98 percent similar between apes and chip and chips and and humans, they re, scientists remove 25 percent of the human DNA and 18% of the chip DNA, and then they did the comparison. When comparing the full strands of both, the, the 1.03 and the 1.06 or whatever, the, the actual full length, we're actually only 60, 60 cent, 66 to 86% the same as a chimp. That's a whole lot less than 98%. A whole lot less than 98%. So don't let anybody fool you. You need to hang on to this piece of information here. Because when they say, oh, you're the same as a chimp. No, I'm not. I'm only 66% the same as a chimp. Or the chimp is 66% like me, whichever way you want to go. Here's another point about all of this. A new study in 2018 showed that the similarity was only 84%. So they're getting more accurate, I guess. By the way, we are also 84% the same as a mouse. We're 85% the same as a cow. And 84% the same as a dog. You know why? Because God's, God does things in patterns. And, you know, dogs have legs, we have legs. Dogs have arms, we have arms. You know, what we don't have is a floppy ears and a big bushy tail. That's the, the 15% that is different. Anyway, hope you enjoy that. I bring all that up just to show you just how silly it is to try to try to link us to our ancestors, what they claim to be our ancestors. So what is the link to humanity? And I will tell you right now, there's way too many links in the evolutionary tr uh, trail to discuss every one of them, and we won't do it, we won't even start. Even doing so would not benefit what we're trying to get done tonight. It would just saturate your brain, and everybody would do a meltdown and just roll out of here. But, there's too much information. If you want to know this information, there's all kinds of ways you can get it, but that's not what we're here for. The effort by evolution, evolutionists, however, to develop a link from animal to human is an attempt. What they're trying to do is connect man to the beginning of creation without God. That's ultimately what they're trying to do. They want to eliminate the possibility that God is existing. The diagram that we looked at shows four branches but within each segment is a many as ten that you know the 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 descending the descending chart of of man and apes and all that. 
in that chart, there were four, um, four branches, but within each of those branches, there was as many as ten different creatures that could provide the path to humans. So that's why I'm not going to go through all of that. I, I, don't, I mean, you, you can take you know, years and years and years of studies if you want to get into all of that, and I would, I, I would not do it very good justice tonight, so that's not what we're going for. The branching began... Four, point, four to five million years ago into a more erect creature. This is them teaching this, not me. This is them. Uh, into a more erect creature called the Astroopith Essenes, basically which are apes and chimps. So anything with the word astral is going to be a, an ape or a chimp. And no matter, no matter what name you read or you see it in the news or you come across it on, on you know, Google searches or whatever, that's basically apes and chimps. Next is the Habilene group, which supposedly has links between creatures to human around 2 million years ago. And so um, I noticed in my studies as I was researching all of this that any creature given the name that begins with Austral generally points to apes. And in fact, the word Austrophinicus means southern apes. So that word is in, um, in bold there. The first part is southern, and the as seen is, is, is ape. So, so, southern apes. Mostly discovered in 19, since 1924 in southern and eastern Africa, they have become the only candidates for the transition to primitive man. And then we had the Habilene group, um, which supposedly links the creatures to human beings. Um, around 2 million years ago. The most significant uh, habiline find is called a Homo habilis, which, which is a, a human, supposedly, known as handyman. Anybody want to buy, you know, hire a handyman to get some work done around your house? You call Homo habilis, and he'll come take care of it. The reason they say he's a handyman is because around the bones that they found that they said this guy came from, they found fossilized tools. And so surely that he had to be the guy using the tool. He was building a house and killed over dead, and his tools and his body turned into fossils. That's, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Anyway, let's go on. Debate continues over where, where to fit the uh, astral phythocenes, where to fit them, where do we plug them in at? But on close examination, features like this is what they look at. They look at their jaw, the position of the opening of the, of the, of the skull where the spinal cord comes in. They look at where uh, the pelvis is at, the hips are at, the thighs are at, the, the legs, the knees, and ankle joints, and so on. They basically have eliminated almost every one of these creatures because they cannot walk erect. The one thing that's different between us and most animals that we would call apes or chimps or whatever is they don't walk, they don't walk standing up. They can, but not like you. I mean, usually they can only go from here to there, and then they, they drop down on all fours again. Uh, you know, they can climb a tree real well, uh, you know, but uh, they don't have the same structure, the same skeletal structure that a human being has. So they can't be a possible. They, they possibly can't possibly be a a, 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 a descendant of ours. The Habilines, likewise, have been difficult for the for the. Uh, the scientists to classify in, in any uniform group, and there's still a lot of dis, 
uh, dis, uh, disagreement in these things. So the evolution of an ape to a man, so you can see here in this diagram, that's basically kind of what I'm talking about. So you see the spine goes into the back of the skull, where on a human being the spine goes into the base, into the bottom of the skull. So the place where the spinal cord goes in is completely different. Uh, then there's, there's other things that are different here. I don't know if you can read all of this stuff here, but uh, the shape of the back, the, the, the rib cage, the hip bones, the leg bones, the feet bones, the hands, all of that stuff, this can't, cannot have produced this. When they start looking at the bones that they do have, they say they don't really match up. So they can't come up with a, with a link. But there are several structural features that allow man to walk upright. Um, man has a larger brain than an upright skull. Man has a flat face. hate to say that to you, but you have a flat face. A flat face that looks both ahead and down very easily. You know, because of where, where your face is, you, can, you, you have a whole lot of peripheral vision. Up, side, down, all around. You don't have, you know, a, a, an ape, you look at that picture, their, their eyes, they can't see down because they, they'd be looking into the top of their jawbone. So they have to look down, but we don't have to do that. Uh, let's see, go on. So there's a, a straight, a flat face, straight back, fully extendable hips, angled femur bones, long legs, arched feet, shorter arms, and weaker muscles, fully extendable knee joints that lock into an upright position, strong big toes as opposed to the big toes of apes, which are more flex- like a flexible thumb. Humans are unable to function in the wild without added protection. Of course, we need... We need a, in the wintertime, we need a coat. Um, rel- we're, humans are relatively hairless compared to a chimp, and man is also capable of abstract thought, music, language, and invention. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people that try to teach an amp, a chimp or a gorilla or whatever to talk. Whether they're able to do that, I don't really know. It's, you see a lot of cool movies about it, though. But consider these points that no one likes to point out. This is not notes necessarily, but the field of human evolution is real is is rife with um, selfishness and quarreling and pride, sensationalism and outright fraud. The whole thing about going and digging in the in the dirt someplace in another country um, is is amazing how much money is involved in all of that. And you know what money does? The root of money is the root of all evil or the love of money, you should say. And so there's two major camps of researchers that has been for many years. There probably still would be the same categories. Uh, a family, a group of people called the Leakies and another group called the uh, Johannesons. Both of them are continually bickering between each camp and with, even within each camp, people are arguing. Major fossils discovered uh, result in wealth and fame. Uh, they're motivating factors to do all research. So if if uh, if I can find a bone and make a tell a good story about this bone, I'll get I'll get university grants. I'll get uh, all kinds of backing, and I'll be rich. It's impossible to determine any sort of evolutionary association between fossil fossilized creatures but they typically only talk about fossils that fit their theories and hide the evidence that disproves it. That's what the scientists ultimately end up doing. 
Evolutionists have been caught going far beyond the evidence and even doctoring the evidence to fit their theories. That's a, that's a bad deal. Okay, so that's the link to humanity. Well, what about the link to God? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 again, God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and all over the earth, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So here's the issue that evolution is trying to avoid. First thing is, is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty and his position over all life. Claiming that man evolved from a lower order of life over millions of years discredits God, discredits his word, and discredits his plan for man. See, if, if you came from an ape through evolutionary processes, then we don't need God. Because you don't know where you're going anyway. We couldn't, God's not going to be able to, to guide you. This attack is truly, I would call this attack, a satanic attack. Evolution also masks other major teaching of the Bible. One of the most important teaching in the Bible then is the beginning of life. And that, that, so the, what's, what's hidden about in evolution is that God has judgment. God's judgment or death Evolution is the philosophical acceptance of death and a natural consequence of existing. And evolution teaches that only things, event, all things eventually die, and there is nothing that can be done about that. So if you're, if you're a Christian and you're a believer and you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you, you have what? Eternal life, absolutely. Praise the Lord. You have, so death is not at your front, death is not at the end of your life. Your body may die, but you are not going to die. You're going to heaven. That's what evolution doesn't want you to think about. They want you to not even consider that because there is no God. If there's no God, there is no Savior. If there's no Savior, then there's no salvation. If there's no salvation, there's no eternal life. Evolution teaches that all things eventually die, and there's nothing that can be done about that. Well, we can prolong it, but it does come to an end, of course. I mean, that's what science, medical science is about, is trying to keep you alive long enough to keep you alive. But you're going to die eventually. Richard Dawkins spoke to John Stewart recently and was asked about death. And he said this, I don't know what happens to us when we die, but I know that our consciousness is wrapped up in our brains, and I know that our brains rot. That's what Richard Dawkins said. So basically he's saying that you, the person you, will rot as well. That's, that's, what, he, that, I mean, that's what he thinks of his future, how he sees his, eternity, his end in his life. But that's so far from the truth. Evolution deceives us and hides the truth. Our consciousness, really what I would call our soul, is eternal and it is who we really are and actually are. And the Bible is clear that the soul either goes to heaven or to hell, but it does not rot and it does not disappear. Death is the biggest lie of evolution and something that was never intended to be directed at humanity, except in disobedience. God never wanted you to die. And I think, I can't remember the verse right now, but it's in Isaiah, but God, God has no desire that man die. I can't think of the verse right now. I wish I could remember that verse, how it goes. Um, think about that for just a minute. God, 
God takes no pleasure in the, in the death, of, uh, death of him that dies. Something along the way. God takes no pleasure in death. And I think that's in Isaiah. Okay, so I lost my place here. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. So there is a death sentence if we disobey God. Romans 5.12, Wherefore, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. But if death, uh, if death existed before man on the earth, if this is, what, this is what basically evolution teaches us, is that death comes before man. Because all of the stuff that came before you has already died. Right? All of the, the life forms that mutated and became human, they're gone. They're dead. They're gone. So death happens before man. If death existed before man was on the earth, before sin, it removes death as a penalty for sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 talks about that penalty. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if death happens, sir, Ezekiel, I knew it was a prophet. Ezekiel 18.23, could you shout that out? Okay. All right. Well, way to, way to jump in there and look at look those verses. That's awesome. Okay. The last point here about the link to God. Evolution attempts to eliminate the need for a Savior. Because, I mean, if, if, if you don't have a soul, and you're, or if you have a soul and your soul is going to rot in your brain as you decay in the ground, then you don't need a Savior. You won't have a Savior. But John chapter 5, verse, 14, verse 24 says, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That's a promise by Jesus Christ that he made, that if you uh, believe on him that sent him, believe on God that sent him, you have everlasting life, and you shall not come into any condemnation. So basically... Death, death, is, death has a purpose in, God, in God's plan, which is to deal with disobedience. But, but evolution puts sin, puts death, the actual dying of living forms before man could even commit sin. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Okay, so that's, uh, that's about as far as I'm going to be able to go tonight because I want to talk about the age of the earth and man, or the ages of the earth and it actually... Um, any questions on, uh, on what we just talked about as far as man and the descent of man or anything like that? I'll give you a chance to ask a question. If not, we'll move on. Yes. Well, if you go, if you go, the only way I best I went, I'm going to jump back real quick. If I can get back real quick. There's more slides than I thought. Okay, right here. Okay, so to answer your question, so you've, let's just say this is the trip down to humanity land, 
but over here is a chimp. So there's a break here. Not every chimp became a human, so there's still some left around. That's all I can say. Does that that make sense to what I'm saying? Okay. All right, let me run back to the front where we were at. You're not trying to read all of that. Okay, here we go. Okay, so throughout this study, reference has been made to ages from science and for how long ago the earth was formed, the universe was formed, and so on, how long the universe, how long ago it began, and so on. The assumption with all of those dates is that science has somehow managed to identify correctly the calendar of existence. So if you were to think about a calendar, I mean, you have a calendar in your, in your life. It's in your head. It's in your heart. You know the day you were born. And so you, you know what today's date is, so you have a calendar. You know, you know how long you've been alive. You know, how, you know what your age is. Somehow or another, the science, science, the scientists have made an assumption about how, just how big the calendar of existence for all things is. Where did everything start? The Bible says it gives us the answer. It says, in the beginning, God created. So that's the beginning of the calendar. They just don't like that calendar. Identifying that the universe is 13.8 billion years old and the earth is 4.5 billion years old or that man has been around for 5 million years implies that evolution is really happening. Think about that. When, 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 uh, when, when the schools are teaching students, when the, when the world, for whatever, however it comes at you, through media, through social media, through movies, through different things, and they're saying these kind of numbers, it's implied that evolution has been taking a long time and things have been happening, um, that, that uh, evolution is really happening, because well, that's a long time ago. And your calendar, from the time you were born until today's, I mean, some people's is longer than others, but basically it's pretty short compared to these numbers that they're giving, right? I mean, I've been living for 64 years. Is that right? <laughs> 64 years. Compare that to 4.5 billion years. I mean, I, that's, a, that's not even a drop. That's a molecule of a drop. So, I mean, that, that's an amazing thing. So the question then becomes, just how old is the earth anyway? Is there any evidence that can be presented that confirms the earth's, the age of the earth? Is it, four, is it 5 million years old? What, what is it? The answer is yes, there is evidence that we could do it, and it does not match the calendar of the evolutionists, but it does match the scripture. Two options exist for the age of the earth. Two options, and this is really powerful. It's either old or young. I mean, that's that isn't that like that just rock your world, right? So it's either older or it's young, so what is it? The issue of the discussion centers on the meaning of the word yom. Um The word yom, what does that word mean? The Hebrew word, is it's a Hebrew word, and it can mean a day, it can mean a period of time, it can mean a year, or a, or signify a special event. The word yom, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the first day, yom, was, and the second day was yom. So every time in, in Genesis 1 where the word day is used, that's the word yom. So how is it being, what is the context of the verse, the context of the word yom? So the Hebrew word, it can mean daylight, it can mean 24 hours, it can mean just a span of time, it can mean a point in time, 
And it can, and then in the plural, the word can also mean a span of life. And then the last one, it can mean it's also associated with end times, meaning the uh, meaning meanings events such as the day of the Lord is a specific event. So the yom of the Lord, a specific event. And so um, I'm going to talk about each one of those real quick. Uh, so the so it can mean a, a day as in daylight. Genesis one five, God created the light. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning was the first day. So those words, day, there's yom. So that means uh, in daylight, as in daylight hours from sunrise to sunset, a day. That's what we what we call it, right? So you got day and night. I mean, we all understand it's, it's night right now. It's, and so it could also mean a literal 24-hour period, such as in Deuteronomy 6, 8, 16, 8. Where, where it says, six days shalt thou eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord. Thou shalt do no work therein. So that seventh day is a 24-hour period. So it was six days that they ate unleavened bread, and then on the seventh day, is, that's, so, that, so the yom in, the, in Genesis 1-5 is, is a time frame, daylight hours, but in Deuteronomy 16-8, it's 24-hour cycle. And just so you know, the word day appears 200 times in the Old Testament. But many of them include like the first day, the second day, the third day. There's a qualifier by what kind of day it is. In every single case, without exception, it is, it, those days refer to a 24-hour day. The word evening is used 52 times and the word morning is 220 times. Always refers to normal days, what we would consider a normal day. When the sun's up, it's daytime. When the sun's down, it's nighttime. We, we all understand that. It's very common. The Bible supports that. And it also could mean a span of time, such as in Numbers chapter 20, 20 verse 15, how our fathers went down into Egypt, and we have dwelt in Egypt a long time. That, that phrase, long time, is translated as, as from the word yom, in that verse. So it's a span of time, a period of time. It could also mean a given point in time, like in Ezekiel thirty-three twelve. Therefore the Son of Man, therefore thou Son of Man, say unto the children of thy people, that righteous of the righteous, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. So that's a point in time, the day of his transgression. And the fifth one is is uh, the uh, the the word uh, as Span of time, Psalm 102, verse 3, for my days are consumed like smoke. So that's that my days, all my life is consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned as a, on a hearth. And then the last one we mentioned was end times. Like in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1, behold, the day of the Lord cometh. There's, a, there's an event that's going to happen that's referred to in the Bible as the day of the Lord. And so that's an end time event. So it's not that the old earth advocates reject the use of yom for a 24-hour period. They just muddy the waters by claiming since it is a multiple-use word, it can be implied that the uses found in Genesis 1 mean something other than a 24-hour day. So there are people that focus on the age of the earth as what's called old, a old earth, and there's others that focus on what, was called, what would be called a new earth or young earth. And so... Um, I'll, I'll touch on that here in just a moment, explain it a little bit deeper. 
But the problem is that when you think about the, day, the, the days and the, the word yom, and especially in Genesis 1, and old earth aligns very nicely to the scientific narrative. If uh, the creative days of Genesis 1 are, are viewed by the people that believe in an old earth as very long periods of time. So that is, I think that's up there. No, that's not up there. That's not, okay. Anyway, I have it marked as a blank. The creative days of Genesis are viewed by people that think the, of the earth as being old, as that Genesis is, each day in Genesis 1 are very long periods of time instead of literal 24-hour days. But if you look at I turn over, if you have your, well, I think I, there's a verse, I don't have this verse up here. You have the verse Isaiah 11, 10, and 11 in your notes. Is that listed in there? Okay, well, I'll just read it to you again. I wish I had it on the screen, but I don't. And in, the, in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for, a, for an tension, tension for the, of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand against this, again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. The biggest problem... I thought I had all this, I apologize. The biggest problem with with this interpretation of day-age things or long, long periods of time is that it puts the sun and the moon and the stars to be millions of years after the creation of plants and animals. Basically, there would be no sun for thousands and millions, you know, for many, many years. The view of science is that the stars existed before the earth or before any plants, but Scripture puts the sun and the stars after that he created the earth. So, so there's problems when you, when you want to make it an old earth. Old Earth doesn't fit what what the the criteria or the the chronology of Genesis one. Then there's another term that people talk about. So that's a, let me go through this real quick. The day age, um, creative days, as seen as long periods of time. That wasn't in the, that. Was, kind of got myself backwards. Put my glasses back on. That probably would help. Okay, so we're at the framework view. This is another view of how people would want to determine how old the earth is, or young, or whatever. The distinctive feature of the framework view is that it's understanding of the week. Not the days, but the week as a metaphor. So They want to make it a metaphor. Week is a metaphor. According to this interpretation, Moses used the metaphor. They're, they're claiming that he did use it as a metaphor of the week to narrate God's action of creation. So God's supernatural creative words or his fiats are real and historical, but the exact timing is left as an unspecified years. When did, when did he actually do what he did? Purpose of this metaphor is to call Adam to imitate God in work with the promise of entering into his Sabbath rest. Creation events are grouped into two triads. That's what you see in the list. You have a... You have, um, a realm and a ruler listed there, and um, 
There are two triads of days. Days 1, 2, and 3, creation's kingdoms, are paralleled by days 4, 5, and 6, creation's kings. And, uh, and so Adam is the king of the earth, and God is the king of creation, of course. But So if you look at that chart, what you see is day 1 is light and darkness for the realm, but the ruler is the sun and the moon. But the sun wasn't created on the first day. So we throw this out right away. Uh, the day, second day, water and skies are ruled by fish and birds, but they, that's not, they weren't made on the second day. Land, uh, and I um, can't read that word, what is that? Being, a human being. And then, of course, day seven is the creator. So there's some problems with this framework of, of, of looking at the creation of the earth. Light on day one is not dependent on the sun. So even though God created the the light in day one, but that's not because of the sun. That's the light of spiritual light. Water was made on day one, but the seas were not gathered until day three. The sea creatures of day five were to fill the waters in the seas, which were gathered on day three, not on day two. So basically, it puts everything out of of order and out out of sequence what really happened according to Genesis chapter 1. So both day, age, and framework views are a form of theistic evolution, meaning that, so I mentioned theistic evolution um, last week or the week before. Basically, theistic evolution is a person believes in God and they believe in evolution, and so they try to squeeze the two together to come out with something that God allowed evolution. God is an evolutionist. That's basically where they would go with that. That's theistic evolution. And these two times, or these two methods of, of trying to identify the age of the earth, the, um, the day, age, and the, and the framework view are a form of theistic evolution. So what do we have then? What's left? Well, it would be a young earth view. A young earth view aligns very nicely with the biblical narrative. And I would say that probably the earth is approximately 6,000 years old. Now creation, uh, creation in six literal or, trans, or traditional 24-hour days, that's, what, that's how it was created. That's just what Genesis chapter 1 talks about. This young earth view accepts the first chapter of Genesis as historical and chronological in character, and it takes the creation week as consisting of six 24-hour days, followed by a 24-hour day of uh, called the Sabbath or a day of rest. Since Adam and Eve were created as mature adults, so the rest of creation came forth from the Maker in maturity. Does that make sense? What I'm saying there? What I'm, I mean, you know, Adam wasn't Adam wasn't born. He was created as a full-grown adult male. The garden included full-grown trees and animals, which Adam named. And those holding this view, this young earth view, believe that it is the normal understanding of creation account and that this has been the most commonly held understanding of this account, both in Jewish and Christian history. So so I I believe that the earth is young. But I'm going to... Shoot that out of the water here in just a moment. Let me talk about genealogies real quick. 
because I got it on the screen. Genealogies remove doubt about how old the earth is. Now, we're not going to go through and read all this. Do you ever wonder why there's so many genealogies in the Bible? Like, there's a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 11. Um, uh, the whole first nine chapters of Chronicles is genealogy. There's genealogy in Matthew, there's genealogy in Luke, there's genealogy all throughout the Old Testament. The genealogy of Genesis chapter 5 shows us the timeline of God's family before the flood. The genealogy of Genesis 11 shows us the expansion of man after the flood. And the genealogies of the Bible are important clues in the age of man. They are regularly attacked with claims of large gaps in the lineages but the truth is that the genealogies do show the beginning of man, even if there are gaps. We know that there is approximately 2,000 years between present day, uh, right now, and the death of Christ, and there's 2,000 years uh, before that, and then, and then uh, uh, from the time of creation, you can go in, in 2,000 year increments. We know that from Christ to Abraham was about 2,000 years, and from Abraham back to Adam was another 2,000 years. This period is one of the generally, mo generally most attacked, um, but these attacks are really unfounded. The only place a gap could possibly have affected the outcome of these, of, these, of these genealogies would be between Adam and Abraham, and I don't think I'm going to take the time to, to go through all of these names here. I don't know. If, are they in? I think they're in your notes. I don't remember. Uh, Seth was a direct, I'll just read them off. Seth was a direct son of Adam and Eve and replacement for Abel. Enos was Seth's son because Seth is named, named him. And Enoch was the seventh son from Adam, according to Jude chapter 14. Lamech was Noah's father because he named Noah in Genesis 5. Shem, Ham, and Japheth were definitely ordinary sons of Noah since they accompanied him on the ark. Arphaxad is the son of Shem, born two years after the flood. Abraham, Haran, and Nahor were Terah's ordinary sons since they journeyed together from Ur of the Chaldees. Arphaxad, missed one. Methuselah, named by Enoch, meant that when he dies it shall be sent. And the Masoretic chronology, without any gaps, would place his death in the year of the flood. So, Second Peter chapter chapter two chapter three verse eight says this. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one. Uh, let me back up here. I'm sorry. So let me say this: on the young on the young Earth view, there are two camps on people who who see the Earth as young. One would say that Genesis one describes the original creation of the Earth and its contents. The other would teach that Genesis 1 describes a recreation of the earth after the fall of Satan and before the sin of Adam and Eve. I mention this to make you aware of the options because we need to consider, we're not going to talk about this tonight, but you do need to consider where, where does Satan fall at? In, in the timeline of the Bible, where did Satan, where was he rejected? Where was he thrown out of heaven? Where was he rejected? Where did he sin? Where did he fall? He actually fell before Genesis chapter 1. So I would say that the earth is a recreation, Genesis chapter 1 is a recreation story. The Bible lays out his recreation of the earth, reestablishing everything, 
uh, so that God wants to make very clear that Satan fell, and then in the uh, in Genesis, when he created Adam and Eve, he established Adam and Eve as the new uh, uh, king. I'll use the term king of of create of of the of God's kingdom, and Satan wanted it. That's what Satan wanted. He wanted to be God, and so he created. He in in. in the best word I'm going to think. So, Satan conned Adam and Eve into sinning. So he had to have sinned first before the before Adam and Eve sinned. So that all took place. God created, recreated the earth after He kicked heaven. The Bible even says, and I think this is in Isaiah 66, that the earth was God's footstool. So it already had a place before. Before anything else happened, so the last thing I want to talk about is that question in Second Peter chapter three verse eight. But what do you do with the day is a thousand years? How do you how do you okay? So if if the Genesis chapter one story is is um, every day is a twenty four hour day, what what's, what's the Bible? What did Peter say that as a, every day is a thousand years and every thousand years is as a day? Why did he say that? It's common to read this verse incorrectly and see it as saying one day is 1,000 years when it actually says one day is as 1,000 years. It doesn't say it is 1,000 years. It says it's as. This is similar, but it's not the same. It is if, however, this really meant. Think about this. If one day really was 1,000 years, this is what would happen. It would be a 6,000-year creation instead of six days. The sun would stand still for Joshua for 1,000 years. Jonah would be in the well, the belly of the well for 3,000 years. Jesus would be in the tomb for 3,000 years. If one day is 1,000 years and he was in the tomb for three days, he would be in the tomb for 3,000 years. Rain in the, in the flood of Genesis was 4,000 years, not 40 days, if every day is 1,000 years. So if we want to be literal, let's be literal. It can't be 1,000 years. It cannot be. So it's got to be, Yom has to be, a day, at a, at a minimum, 24-hour period of time. One last thing I want to throw out here is a population growth. Uh, and this is an interesting statistic. I'm not a statistician or anything like that, but if man evolved just a million years ago, if man evolved one million years ago, there would be 10, 10 to the 43rd people are, or 10 with 43 zeros behind the population on the earth. 10.000043 times. I don't even know what kind of a number that would be. An average rate, um, an average rate growth of 0.4% would produce 4.8 billion in 4,500 years. Today's population growth is 1.2%. So population is about 8 million, or no, I'm sorry, 8, yeah, no, 8 billion. 8 billion people, give or take a few. But here's an interesting thing. Now, this is, I wrote this last year when the population was still 7 billion. If you divide 7 billion by 2 and just keep dividing the result by 2, 
it'll take 31 or 32 divisions to get to two people. That's how many doublings since Adam and Eve. The population doubled and doubled and doubled and doubled and doubled 32 times to get to the point of 7 billion people in the earth. It's an amazing thing to think about. I'm just going to leave you hanging with that. Um, the point is, it couldn't have been four point, man couldn't have been on the earth for five million years, or whatever that number was we said at the beginning of this thing. Hmm? Five million years, that's what I thought I said. So if man was here five million years, let's take that, that top row up there. If man had evolved five million years ago, there would be 10 with 43 zero population today. Literally, the, 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 the earth would be overrun with people. That takes into account death rates and massive, you know, destruction of the earth and people die. Still takes the birth rate or the, uh, the the population growth rate still takes into that account. So five years, five million years, um, and but the population growth rate uh, at, an, at an average growth rate of 0.4 would produce 4.8 billion in 4,500 years. So you want to know how old the earth is or how long man has been around, you can kind of back, work it backwards statistically looking at it that way. So that's going to bring us up to the end of the day. Um, a lot of material. I, I kind of gave you an idea that there's, there is a lot of stuff to consider, to think about, regarding the generations of man and the age of the earth and all of that. I would encourage you to do your own research. If you don't, if something... Something is like, I don't know what that means. There's a lot of good information out there. There's a lot of good books. We have some books in the Resource Center you can look at on Sunday. Um, and if you send... Hmm? The library's got books in it, too. Very good. Yes, thank you for pointing that out. You guys know we have a library, right? I, think, I hope everybody knows we have a library. Um, so you can check a book out. It doesn't cost anything. You just It's like the same way you check it out. There's a card catalog... And on top of the card catalog is instructions on how to check a book out and how to return it. So Catherine Weakland is responsible for turning, you know, getting the books back on the shelf after they get re re returned. Okay, so let's uh, let's end here. And uh, next week uh, we have a guest speaker, and I don't know how much time he's going to have, but uh, I would encourage you to come and listen to him. His name is Rajan, not Rajan. His name is Rotten. Uh, he, it sounds kind of bad, but that's how you say it is rotten. He is a pastor. Um, he has his church and a, and a tr uh, training center on the border with India and Bhutan. And he's teaching the Bible to men that go into Bhutan to reach that country for Christ. And uh, it's been really good. So he's going to be coming here and um, speaking. And then when, depending on how much time he takes, we're going to jump into the, the topic of morality. We're going to look at the issue of morality. So, where does morality come from, and how does how does how do we account for it? So let's pray, and then we'll be done. Out of here, Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for.